Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast. Episode 28, How Much is Enough? As the first batch of prisoners in what would be an ever-growing pool of men started their training under Master Printer Petrik, the desperate men quickly picked up the skills they needed to make the mostly passable counterfeit British banknotes. After all, their lives, or stretching out those lives, hung in the balance. And it seemed that in no time, the master printer was it needed at Block 19, and so spent most of his time in the next place he could do some good, at the civilian factory that produced the paper the prisoners would use. Over the next two years, Kruger would bring in just over 140 men from 15 different nations, mostly Jews, but some mixed Michelin, or partial Jews, into his relatively small, fenced-in world. As for the men themselves, which started out as an eight-hour shift, six-days-a-week endeavor, mushroomed into an alternating 12-hour shifts working around the clock. Where the fake money went, the men of Block 19 did not know, but the appetite of those it was turned over to seemed insatiable. One prisoner, a toolmaker named Citrin, was put in charge of taking the bronze plates from the previous Operation Andreas and improving upon them. SS Major Bernhard Kruger, the man in charge, demanded perfection, and the men wanted to give him that. Not only would they live longer, but they would then be able to tell Kruger that Petrik, whom none of them trusted, was no longer needed at Block 19. This independent streak was established early on and adopted by those that came later. It probably didn't hurt Petrik's feelings too much. Citrin's work was made immeasurably easier as another group of men took real banknotes, made copies of them, while blowing them up to six times their normal size and examining their every detail. This allowed Citrin's team to focus in on the note's finest points, enough so to soon finish off the plates that would serve as the originals. Throughout their time in the camp, the prisoners had the best and latest of all machinery needed, printers, copiers, presses, and cutters. As for the other prisoners waiting for the process to reach their workbenches, they got a taste of just how busy they would one day be, as they were forced, by a pistol in their face, to count paper cut to the size of British banknotes. Thousands of bills every day went through their hands. The man waving the pistol was Gestapo, and he didn't want anything to go wrong on his watch. The last thing he needed was an SS major upset with him. So the men, though they grew bored within hours of their first day, counted cut paper for three solid weeks, eight hours a day. By the time they were done, their fingers had memorized the paper, that is, its texture, stiffness, and strength. This same skill was owned and used by thousands of bank tellers all over Europe. And thanks to Kruger, who drove his non-prison workers just as hard at a factory near Hanover, the paper he selected was considered 95 to 97 percent of the same quality of the real British notes. Now that they had the correct paper to work with, the process was started, and so Kruger decided it was time for another carrot for his men. 
The prisoners were allowed to sleep on individual cots, as opposed to the normal configuration of being stacked four high. Also, besides being allowed to have their own private lockers, the men were allowed to remove their striped uniforms and replace them with civilian clothes. Of course, those had to have a thick red stripe painted on the legs. And finally, the men, who were used to being treated as non-entities, were allowed to grow their hair out and establish a semblance of individuality. But Kruger was just getting started. Motivated by success, he defined as fulfilling his orders any way possible. The Major pushed the limits of Hitler's idea of how the Jews should be treated. As many of his workers of German and Czech nationality were only partially or half-Jewish, or, if they were married to non-Jewish women, soon found that it was permissible to receive food parcels from their families. So his men ate better than they had in a long time, though some, to their consternation, found that their stomachs could no longer handle the richer foods. Still, the gesture was appreciated, and their morale, their desire to please the major, soared even higher. Of course, that morale took a hit once a week, when the men showered as the guards who did not share Kruger's finesse, alternated the flowing water from scalding hot to freezing cold without warning. But then playtime, as it were, for the men and the guards came to an end on December 2nd, 1942, when the printers and other machines recently arrived from Delbuchstrasse became operational. Then the gate around Block 19 rarely opened. The guards inside as well as out, had orders to shoot anyone that tried to enter or leave the building and its small surrounding area. Whether a fire broke out, which happened at one point, or any other emergency occurred, the men inside were on their own. They might as well have been on their own planet, with Kruger as their son, which is how he wanted them to think as he occasionally passed out his carrots. Besides which, as they had their own doctor, barber, and diesel-powered generator, any other concerns that could not be met with these did not interest the SS Major. As more transferred men entered Block 19, space for them, something normally not taken into consideration, was becoming too restrictive. So, Block 18, just next door, had to be taken over to accommodate the increase. Soon the thick barbed wire was enlarged to incorporate that blockhouse as well, which actually left the men the space in between the buildings for walking and exercise. Kruger skillfully used this to show the men that he cared about their physical well-being. It was time to begin, or rather to begin, the trial and error part of the process that would lead to the nearly flawless copies of British banknotes. It took just over 100 samples of paper before Kruger selected a result that satisfied him. The next challenge was the watermark. The marks or security patterns for each denomination come about as pulp is taken out of the vat, mostly in the form of water. Then it is sent through rollers numerous times to squeeze the water out, leaving behind the paper. But during the last time, the pressure on the paper is backed off a bit in a particular area, and a pattern is introduced. 
This can be seen when the paper is held up to the light. But Kruger wanted perfection, and the factory's watermarks weren't even close. But after several days of trying, and this is going to sound cliché-ish, the best results came about after an accident in the lab with one of the rollers. The second hurdle had been cleared. Occasionally, problems like this would arise, and weeks would go by without Block 19 receiving any paper from the factory. This owing to Kruger's constant vigilance and exacting standards. But for the men locked away at Sachsenhausen, not knowing any of the details, fear would creep into their midst as they surmised that perhaps Operation Bernhard had been cancelled before it could really get going. If that were true, then what would become of them? Well, they knew the answer to that, hence the intrepidation. But then, the next shipment would arrive, and the men could return to their routine. Eventually, Kruger had to give up on his desire for paper that matched exactly with British currency. But he felt they were close enough, and really, the only way to tell the difference was to hold the paper under a quartz lamp that would show the two slightly different colors, and who had time for that? At first, no one did, but that would change. For now, it would have to do. The least challenging part of the process, ironically, was the ink used by the Bank of England, and that was because that ink came from Germany. It was called Frankfurt Black. The pigment came from the charcoal of German grapevines boiled in linseed oil. It was made in Berlin, and after a single telegram with the SS insignia, the prison camp started receiving shipments. The last big challenge for the men to overcome were the dozens upon dozens of security marks within the banknotes themselves. This took the longest time. In fact, it was the finding and duplicating of these purposeful imperfections that shook Kruger's confidence in his men, and it showed on his imperfect smile as he checked up on their status every week. The men redoubled their efforts. First, the men found the imperfect lines within the bills, then the eyes with the misaligned dots, next the faulty shadows. These were discovered with time and hard work, but then there was the Britannia medallion itself, and always that had three flaws. The first were the five dots on the back of her right hand. Then there was the minute break across the shaded line in the upper right-hand section of foliage around the figure. And finally, the shaded line following the spear that stopped just short of matching the base. These and others were found, but the men never found them all, as they were not expected to. Turns out that each bill contained more than 150 security marks, and no one could be expected to locate and duplicate them all. Ironically, some of the imperfections were so small that if the men were unsure, they simply pushed a pin through the curious spot, and voila, the issue was resolved. Time passed for the men well enough, as in they didn't have to answer for roll call each morning. Their torment had been reduced to a minimum, as it may have affected their performance. And if they were beaten, which they certainly were, it was mostly due to making a mistake or dropping a tool that shattered the concentration of those working around them. So it seemed surreal to the men when one day in early 1943, 
Major Kruger shouted once he was inside the barrack, quote, Look at this gentleman, unquote. He took out a banknote. Quote, this note has been circulating in English banks and accepted as genuine. Congratulations on excellent work. I am proud of you, gentlemen. Now we can really go to town. Unquote. He told them of his plan to expand their production. Then he introduced another carrot. Their latest perk was to have music from German radio pumped into the barracks. But the men secretly used this window to the outside world to learn of the war. After all, their only chance of coming out of this alive was to have the war end in such a way that they could be rescued before being killed for what they knew. The chance of this, they confirmed for each other, was remote at best, but hope was still theirs. But more than the music, they knew their lives could go on for a while longer, and they would be treated decently. Kruger's success was their survival. From mid-1943 until the middle of 1944, the prisoners, numbering just over 100, worked in 12-hour shifts with the latest machinery, which helps explain their ability to produce 650,000 banknotes each month. Kruger had the men focus on 5, 10, 20, and 50-pound notes only, knowing that 100-pound notes were always examined. For the sake of context, by the end of Operation Bernhard, the prisoners of Block 19 and 18 had produced almost 9 million individual notes, worth, at the time, 132 million pounds. And the men put their backs into it. Two men each worked the six presses, taking paper from the huge stacks, but first making sure the watermark was acceptable. Then the printed paper had to be cut into four separate banknotes. The British printed out sheets of two notes per page, but Kruger wanted the process speeded up, thus the four notes to a sheet. Next was the aging process, to make the brand new, though totally fake, banknotes appear worn and aged. But even that wasn't enough for the SS Major. Then a line of men with purposefully dirty hands would handle the money, rub it, fold it, bend it this way and that, and then write English words with English ink on them. Then stamp the name of various British banks on the backside, thus giving each bill a history. But then came the most important part, at least to Kruger, and really he was all that mattered. Each banknote was placed under two bright lights and laid next to a genuine matching note. It was only after comparing the two that each banknote was given a grade and placed in the appropriate pile. These inspectors worked 10-hour shifts, had about two minutes to review each bill, but still, they were responsible for their mistakes. Most would end the day with headaches or tired eyes after having concentrated so much, but, again, were motivated by the knowledge that they held their lives and the lives of their fellow prisoners in their hands. So, the standing rule was, quote, when in doubt, always place the note in a lower category, unquote. The best forgeries were placed in the first category. These notes were meant for German spies in foreign countries. 
it was also used for their pay, which they didn't know. But hopefully, what they didn't know wouldn't hurt them, or get them hurt. The next category were almost grade A bills, but contained minor errors, but not enough to destroy the bill altogether. The third category contained even more flaws, but still, those same flaws had been found in the real bills, so they were sent to foreign countries to buy raw material for the German war effort. The fourth and final category were simply stacked up high and tied together, the idea being these bills would one day be dropped over Britain. Later, as it was obvious that wasn't going to happen, those notes were placed in circulation with the Category 3 bills. Any bills not good enough for the fourth category were burned. Each and every Saturday morning, SS Major Kruger Bernhard would show up and take possession of that week's labor. But that changed in time. Near the middle of 1944, when the men's output was at its peak, Kruger's suitcase could only hold the Category A bills. Then he would drive straight to SS Foreign Espionage Headquarters in Berlin, per his instructions from Schellenberg. Before long, again due to output, the other category notes were bulk shipped to German commercial attaches in Norway and Denmark, as well as neutral countries like Spain, Portugal, Turkey, and Switzerland. Note that last country. Those packages had the sender listed as Heydrich Himmler. They were not inspected too closely. As for Kruger being a man of the world, he benefited from Operation Bernhardt as well. As his suitcase was filled every Saturday morning, a separate envelope was placed in his hands, containing 20 Category A notes for his personal use. It's good to be the king. As the operation was running smoothly, no one, whether Nazi or prisoner, wanted to be the one to throw a monkey wrench into the works. Still, mistakes were made, and the offending prisoner was beaten or made to endure punishing physical exercises. There were deaths, though relatively few, and each one only at the word of Kruger. After one prisoner, Hermann Gutig from Frankfurt, purposefully burnt two dozen notes in protest after a beating, Kruger had him hanged. In all, four other prisoners were similarly killed when it was found they had communicable diseases that threatened the very life of Operation Bernhard. The last planned death was Isaac Sukhenniks, when it was discovered he had tuberculosis. As stressful as the production of near-perfect counterfeit banknotes was, the two guards, Marok and Weber, didn't make things any easier. Weber was always on the lookout for an excuse to beat his charges, while Marok would zoom around just outside their door on a motorcycle, making a terrible racket and kicking up dirt and rocks against the windows. The men hated these two, but knew better and kept their eyes down and knew better than to offer any challenge, no matter how slight, to these two men. However, as a rule, it is never wise to be stupid during a time of war or when working on a top-secret operation. So secret, in fact, that even many ranking Nazi officials did not know it existed. 
On weekends, Marak and Weber would take their own little envelopes from Block 19 and head to Berlin. They would spend lavishly on the wives of Nazi officers who were at the front. The food was good and plentiful, from the black market, of course. The wine flowed, the women smiled, some did more than smile, and Marok and Weber couldn't but help brag about their jobs. So one day, two Gestapo agents came to Block 19. Had the suddenly two nervous guards come out of the fenced-in area, and started asking questions. The prisoners watched as before not too long, the Gestapo men started doing to the guards what they had done to them. But then it got worse, as their insignia was torn from their clothes, and the men were marched away. Not that the prisoners knew this, but Marok was soon shot, and Weber was given the choice of 15 years in prison, oh, the irony, or he could serve on the Russian front. It was not recorded what his decision was. But the prisoners did not revel in the downfall of their two tormentors. Instead, and this is to be expected, of humans who find themselves in a context that equates change with death. When Major Kruger came to the barracks the next day, he confirmed that Marok and Weber would not be returning to work. But that didn't mean Operation Bernhardt was finished. True, it had been threatened, but now, again, it was safe. Safe enough to continue working, which is all the men cared about. This same, yeah, but how does it affect me, attitude, endured when the men of Block 19 heard about the D-Day landings. The following Saturday, when Kruger came to pick up the ready banknotes, he was peppered with questions about their assignment. Were there to be any changes? Kruger smiled and assured the men that nothing had changed. They were to focus on their job, enjoy their little perks, nothing more, but also nothing less. As the men did not consider themselves as having a future, that was the best possible answer. So they went back to work, more motivated than ever before, and gave Kruger what he wanted. So much so that by mid-1944, the banks of Switzerland now flooded with one million counterfeit, although excellent counterfeit, British banknotes, stopped accepting British currency altogether. Greetings, everyone. Ray here. Just wanted to give you an update on the tour. Uh, We had a couple more people sign up. Thank you very much. And we just need a couple people more just to lock it in to hit that number so we can so we can move forward on this. So if you are, um, please consider it. It's uh, go to geeknationtours.com. And there's all the details and the and the places we'll go and the fees and the days and stuff stuff like that. So as I'm doing research for that, just trying to get some more information, um, I came across this speech by Her Royal Highness Princess Elizabeth. Now, Queen Elizabeth. And it was a speech to all the little children. It was given in October of 1940. It was a speech for all the children who had been evacuated from their homes and maybe they're afraid of what's going on, not really you know, sure what's going on, not being able to see mommy and daddy. And it was just this young person herself um, just telling everybody it was going to be okay. Thank you for everybody who was taking the children in and just reassuring them. And it was just so endearing. I just wanted to share it with you. Uh, so here's just a short clip of that. Thousands of you in this country have had to leave your homes 
and be separated from your fathers and mothers. My sister Margaret Rose and I feel so much for you, as we know from experience what it means to be away from those we love most of all. To you living in new surroundings, we send a message of true sympathy, and at the same time, we would like to thank the kind people who have welcomed you to their homes in the country.